Let's pray again for just a second. Father, it's a great weekend to be in your presence when we've been thinking about past mercies, Lord, and past provisions, uh, ways uh, both in our nation's history, hopefully too, Lord, in our own lives, the ways you have blessed, Lord, the, the expressions of your goodness we have seen uh, in the past and in the present. And Lord, as we look back and remember your kindnesses and your goodness, help us to get a greater sense of your absolute design to bless us. And Lord, help us to cultivate a, a spirit not only of thanksgiving, but of celebration, indeed of feasting in your presence, for that is part of what you've called us to in this glorious relationship we have with you through Jesus Christ. Lord, open our eyes to see you more clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about a concept that's fairly simple, and Thanksgiving weekend is a great uh, time to do this, which is simply this, that among other things, God is the Lord of the feast, and God calls us to feast. And if we have a vision or a view of God that doesn't embrace a view not only of his benevolence, but that God himself calls us, not just invites us, sometimes requires of us, that we join him at the feast table. This is represented in a variety of ways in the scriptures, and we'll look at several of those this morning. But that's it. The long and the short of it is, the Lord is the Lord of the feast, and God calls us in part, both now and the future, to feast in his presence. You know, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and that's why it's a particularly good time to be talking about this. I'm wiped out. You know, supposedly on the holidays you get more sleep. I have slept in, but I came here this morning and I'm just like on zero with Sally too, maybe, maybe several others. You know, we prepared for Thanksgiving, we feasted, we've wined, we've dined, the, fellow, the relatives have been over or we've been over to the relatives. Uh, you know, hopefully in all of that there was some time or there were some points where maybe at your table like ours we just said, what are some of the things that we're thankful for? at this Thanksgiving celebration, this Thanksgiving feast, what are some of the specific things, Jamie, we're thankful for? There's a few. Hopefully you did the same thing this weekend too. You know, if you are not a Christian, or maybe even if you are, there's a caricature of God that's still popular in our culture, and it's basically that God wants you to have fun, but not too much fun. Uh, God sort of at some level is a cosmic killjoy, and that if you're a Christian, you're really cut off from a life that could otherwise be really enjoyable and have lots of uh, fun and excitement along the way. So somehow God wants to squash your sense of joy or fulfillment or happiness. And my argument this morning, at least in part, is that's just the opposite of things. And you see that in part because God calls us to this sense of feasting which is a celebration. You know, feasts are supposed to be high points in life, historically or currently for us. Feasts are sort of life as good as it gets. And God calls us, in part at least, to a life that reflects his goodness because he calls us to feast. So if we entertain a view of God that is less than that, I think we're missing the boat. And I think we perhaps add to the caricature or the misbegotten notion that God wants you to have fun a little bit, not a lot. 
No, rather, God is the God of the feast. Now, when I'm talking about feasting this morning, I assume you know there's some things I'm not referring to here. I'm not talking about getting drunk. I'm not talking about gluttony. I'm not talking about excesses that don't, uh, aren't in the best benefit of the people doing it and certainly don't honor God as well. And you can see in Isaiah, passages in Isaiah, where he talks about the drunkards, the revelers, and, and he condemns that. That's not what we're talking about this morning when we're talking about feasting. Rather, we're talking about the Thanksgiving type of feast, and Lord willing, the type of feast that we'll also enjoy in another month or so at Christmas that looks like this. The times in life when we stop from our labors, we put the mundane, everyday, necessary elements of life we put them on the back burner. We gather with our friends and our families, family and faith. We celebrate with food and with song and with stories and with memories of good times past. And we do that in the presence of God and our Savior. We give Him the thanks He deserves because He is indeed the founder of every feast, every true feast. You know, historically, if you look at that first Thanksgiving, I don't know if you guys remember your history well or not, you know, the pilgrims, 1621. Uh, the feast, you know, the context for that is that uh, over 100 people and a crew left Plymouth, England in 1620 on the Mayflower. And they came with a charter from King James to establish a new colony in the New World. And they intended to go further south along the American coast. I can't remember which river it was. But anyway, winter's getting on, and so somewhere around Cape Cod, they land and they say, this is it. And that first winter, they are not prepared for. And so about half of their number die in the first winter, half of the crew and half of the pilgrims. Half of everyone that sailed on the Mayflower just about died that first winter. They weren't ready. Disease, famine, exposure, half of them were wiped out. So in 1621, they meet a friendly chief, Massasoit, in his Indian tribe, and that tribe helps them come to grips with what, how you get about feeding yourself in this new colony. And they learn about corn, they're shown how to fish in the bay there, lobsters and whatever the flat fish are that swim on the bottom. Anyway, so by the fall of 1621, they have shelters that are adequate for the winter, and they have food laid up. And remember, the pilgrims left England to come here Part of their charter on the Mayflower was they had come here, they believed, on a mission from God to further or to spread, they said, the Christian religion. And so that group, in the fall of 1621, they set aside three days to feast because it was a thanksgiving to God that they were now preserved, their surviving numbers had been preserved, and that they were ready to go through another winter, confident of God's provision. They had the stocks laid up. So for three days, the pilgrims and the Indians, about twice as many Indians as pilgrims, for three days they feasted on all the provision God had blessed them with that year. And they gave God thanks, and they gathered with each other. They celebrated in each other's company. They gave thanks to God. That was our first Thanksgiving feast. And for the pilgrims, this was nothing really new because historically, whether it was the Protestants or before them in the Catholics, when Christians had called on God and God had given some deliverance, whether it was in a war or whether it was pestilence or famine, they needed rain, whatever it was, it was common for Christians to set aside a special day 
in which they were going to feast in God's presence as a way of celebrating God's deliverance and His goodness with Him. Thanksgiving to God, celebrating His presence in God's presence. That was the deal. That was the Thanksgiving feast. You know, Thanksgiving has gone through lots of convolutions and changes in the last about 400 years. So when you think of it, I don't know if it's Black Friday. Maybe, is it Black Thursday now? So Black Friday is now bled over into Thanksgiving. Uh, it's football games. It's a lot of things for a lot of people. You know, after that first one in 1621, there were subsequent... Uh, is this as bad as it sounds to me, guys? Do you guys have a buzz or a, a feedback here? Is it just me? Okay. The little gray cells aren't working, Teresa. Yeah. Um, Thanksgiving was celebrated off and on through the colonies in the early states sort of as called for. But it wasn't regular, and it wasn't until 1863 that Lincoln made it a national holiday on the last Thursday of every November. And that brings us up to today. But this concept where we as a nation set aside a day in the fall in which we said, Lord, we're stopping from what we're doing, and we're saying thank you for your past deliverances, thank you for pr your provision today, and we trust you for the future, and we feast in your presence to do all of that with each other and you, this is a great example of the kind of feasting God has called us to. God is the Lord of the feast, and he calls us to feast. You know, the Christmas season's coming up, and if you're a shopper, maybe it's already started for you. But, you know, the same thought will carry over when you approach your Christmas feast. In the Charles Dickens Christmas Carol story, I love the part when Scrooge visits with the angel of that year's Christmas he visits Bob Cratchit's house and you know Bob Cratchit has paid very little he subsists on meager rations and he and his family there they have the best they can put together for the year on Christmas Day they've got a goose they've got the plum pudding it looks really good the kids are ready to jump in one of the boys yells hurry father cut the goose I can't wait and Bob Cratchit says haven't we forgotten something and then he prays, Lord, we thank you for the bounty you have placed before us. We thank you for this day of love and joy. We thank you for allowing us to be together to share with each other and with you the fullness of our hearts on this special day. That's God's kind of feast. We're gathered with each other giving thanks to you for what you've done. Now, historically, feasts go way back before Israel, and you know this. Think of the nation of Israel for just a second. I don't know if you've thought about it in this way or not, but the covenant relationship Israel enjoyed with God was punctuated by required feasts. In other words, the life of the Jew with God revolved around requirements. Seven times every year to get together before God communally, six of those times to feast in his presence. Literally, he was the Lord of the feast and he required it. This was part of the law. Three of those were required for every male in Israel to be present. If you could, you could go to all seven. But men were required to be at three, unleavened bread, Pentecost, and ingathering. Two in the spring, one in the fall. So in Israel's calendar, in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16, I think those are on your study sheet. Those are the key passages that list this. But seven times a year the nation was constrained to come before God, six of which were 
celebrations. They were feasts. The seventh we'll get to in a minute, Yom Kippur, it was not a feast that specific day. But on each one of those occasions, the six in which there was feast, work was stopped, families gathered together to feast and celebrate before God. They remembered His past deliverances and they gave thanks for His provision and blessing. Now, on the day of Yom Kippur, it was the day of atonement. On that day there was fasting and there was prayer. But on every other occasion, what the Jews would do, if the tent was present in their day or if it was the temple later, they'd bring their tithes and offerings with them. And they would offer those there to the Lord at the altar. And if they committed sin, it was a sin offering or a guilt offering, they'd take care of their sin issues. They offered to God their offerings. And then in God's presence, they celebrated with Him at the feast God Himself required. They sat down in His presence with each other, stopped all work, and celebrated God's goodness. This was what God required them to do. I love this because if we think God's all about the work and not about the blessing, we've missed it. Israel's calendar was punctuated. It revolved around feasts, four in the spring, three in the fall. So if you were a Jew, you grew up celebrating required feasts before God as a routine part of your life. And part of the offerings you took, you gave to the priests and they were kept there at the temple or the tabernacle. And part you sat down with your family and you enjoyed what God had provided for you. God was really the Lord of the feast. The, uh, probably the biggest single feast I think recorded in the scripture historically, uh, 1 Kings 8 you remember King David wanted to build a temple, but God said, you're not the man to do that, but your son will. And so Solomon takes all the provisions David laid aside and gathered up, and Solomon takes seven years and he builds the temple. And 1 Kings 8 tells the story about its completion. And it says, when the priest took the ark into the Holy of Holies and set it down, the glory of God filled the temple in this cloud of light such that the priests had to run out. They couldn't stay in there. And Solomon blesses God and then he turns around and he blesses the people. And he throws a feast, a celebration because God's good promise to David had been fulfilled. David's son Solomon now sits on his throne. And though Solomon ends badly, if you read the end of his story, it doesn't go well for him in the end of his life, Still, Solomon's reign was the golden age. It was the golden era of Israel. Their greatest expansion of their land, richest wealth. Solomon was renowned throughout the world for the wisdom God himself had sovereignly given him. And this was the institution of the golden age. And Solomon, in recognition of God's presence in the tabernacle, in the temple, and God's promise to bless them, Solomon throws a lavish feast. One part in this text says the animals that were sacrificed were too numerous to number. <coughs> Elsewhere in the same text it says at least 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep, 14 days of national feasting. God's in the temple. Solomon's on the throne. God has kept his promises. We trust him for the future. He's been faithful in the past. And they took two weeks to feast in his presence because of that. In fact, I love verse 66. Winding down on that passage, it says this. 
He sent the people away and they blessed the king. Then they went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart, for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. That was the effect. Glad of heart, the goodness of the Lord. They go away blessed and blessing because of their feast, their presence before God in this occasion. Now, that wasn't just true for Israel in the Old Testament. When you move into the Gospels, you see that Jesus, as a faithful Jewish man, he kept the feasts of Israel also. And so when you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus was in Jerusalem, for instance, in John 7, for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus kept the feasts like every other Jewish male did. Jesus was a Jew, and he kept the appointed feast that he himself appointed there on Sinai. So he kept the feast himself. Also, the thing, though, that I would like to emphasize about Jesus and the feast is the feast of Passover If you look in Luke 22, that's just the example of this that I've listed there on your study sheet. Jesus is keeping the feast of Passover. And remember, Passover celebrates that God delivered the Jews from death, the angel of death that went through Egypt, and then he delivered them from slavery, a kind of death in Egypt also. And as long as they were under the blood of the lamb on that doorpost, they were feasting. Death was going on everywhere else. But in every Jewish household where the blood of the lamb had been placed, the eldest in that household was safe. And for them, there was a reminder of the bitterness of slavery because they ate bitter herbs. But everything else was a feast. They had bread and they had the lamb. They had whatever else, the produce of the land. And they were feasting before God the Passover originally and then every year after that remembering God's deliverance. Well, it's in the context of the feast of the Passover Luke 22, that Jesus institutes a new kind of feast in the Lord's Supper. We don't think of this necessarily as a feast, but it is. And just picture this again. You're with Jesus celebrating a feast, eating the meal God required, celebrating the past deliverance, and then he says, when the cup and the bread are passed around, now in the future when you do this, When you break this bread, remember my body broken for you. And when you drink this cup, remember my my blood poured out for you. In the context of the feast of the Passover, Jesus institutes the feast that we call either the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, or Communion. Now, if you look at the elements of the Lord's Supper and you say it's bread, it's a little bit of bread, and it's a little bit of wine or grape juice, doesn't look like much of a feast to me, perhaps, then we'd miss the point, wouldn't we? Because it's not the thought that that feast is primarily physical. That is primarily spiritual. It feeds our souls and it feeds our spirits. When we come to that table, that feast table that Jesus himself has spread, we're remembering what he did for us, how much he loved us, how he poured himself out for us, and his promise of our future hope with him at a feast that never ends in heaven, Psalm 16. So it was in the context of the feast of the Passover that Jesus institutes this new feast. And when we eat the elements of the Lord's Supper, the feast of the Lord's Supper, the thought is that just as I eat those elements and they become part of my body, they give life to all parts of me, 
Jesus, by his Spirit, inhabiting the believer is in us and through us. He's in us, he said in John, and we're in him. And so the Lord's Supper is a different kind of feast. It's a feast for our souls. It's a feast for our spirits. It is, in that sense, the highest form of feast we can participate in. You know, I know it's easy sometimes for the Lord's Supper to be kind of this rote thing that you do. You know, God said do it, and so we do it. But really, we should come to it with this sense of not only soberness, because it reflects Jesus' death for our benefit, but also with a profound sense of joy, because that's the feast that reminds us we're saved. And God has all good future things laid up for us because of what that feast symbolizes, Jesus' death on our behalf. Michael Card said it this way in a song probably 20 years ago or so, called Come to the Table, it reads in part, Come to the table he's prepared for you, the bread of forgiveness, the wine of release. Come to the table and sit down beside him. The Savior wants you to join in the feast. God calls us. You know, just like the Jewish feast, the Lord's Supper is a commandment for Christians. God didn't say it's an option. He does say as often as you do it, but he said... Do it, just like the Jewish feasts. We're reconciled with God through Christ, and we remember that blessing and that deliverance at the feast that is the Lord's Supper. Now, if you move to 1 Corinthians 11, in the life of the church, uh, we know that when those Gentiles, those new Christian Gentiles, sat down to celebrate the Lord's Feast, the Lord's Supper, they did so in the context of a food feast, a love feast. And 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that. Now, you know if you know the passage that Paul was addressing them on this issue because they were abusing the feast. They weren't treating each other right and God was not pleased with that. It's like the family sat down for a communal meal and some didn't have any food and, and they're just rejoicing away and, and the da you know, dad says, Junior, this, this won't do. You, know, you need to feed your siblings next to you. So Paul addresses them for some abuses but the Corinthians understood an important principle and it was that the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that feast Jesus left and commanded us to do, it was in the context of this larger feast that they participated in. So the Lord's Supper was part of a feast just like it was for Jesus on the night of the Last Supper. Lord's Supper instituted in the midst of a feast. The early Christians were celebrating the Lord's Supper in the midst of a communal meal. So they were thanking God for Jesus and their deliverance and they were also thanking God for the bounty he provided them at the meal they ate together also. They got it. They understood it. This is also, by the way, at this church when we do the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of each month, that's the same Sunday that we have a potluck and there's method in the madness on that because we wanted to tie the thought of our communion with Christ at the Lord's Supper with the communion we enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ at the table God has set for us, really and practically. And so hopefully on those Sundays, you stick around, bring something to share, and sit down with someone in the church maybe that you don't know because the communion you enjoy with each other is part of what Jesus left us in, the remembrance of his death in the context of the feast. We've tried to be intentional about that, and so that's why those are on the same Sunday for us still today. But the early church got it. They'd linked the Lord's Supper with the love feast, just like the Passover Supper was the point at which this was introduced originally.
Now past this, when Jesus wanted to use an illustration about the desirability of entering into his kingdom, he used the example of a wedding feast. So in Matthew 25, you remember the story about the ten virgins? You know, there's a wedding they're waiting for the groom. They're not sure when he's going to come. And so the ten virgins have their lamps. Five are wise, five are foolish. The five wise ones have enough lamp or oil in their lamps to hang out and wait. And so the bridegroom comes and they call the wedding feast is ready. And so the wise virgins have their lamps and they proceed in. Those who are ready went in with him to the wedding feast. So when Jesus wanted to offer an illustration or an example about the desirability of entering into his kingdom, he compared it to going to a wedding feast. Those feasts usually lasted about a week. And it was an extravagant banquet. And the family that had that wedding, man, this was huge. This was preparation for a long time to break out everything, all the dishes, all the food, everything you could because it would be a disgrace or an insult to not provide adequately for your extended family and friends. And Jesus says when he's talking about be ready to enter my kingdom, he says it's as desirable as being able to go to the wedding feast. So in Jesus' life as well, you see him celebrating the feasts of Israel. You see that in, it's in the context of the feast of the Passover that he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then he uses the imagery a feast in his motivation to tell other people, be ready for my second coming. Be ready to enter my kingdom. The last point here is that there are promises for future feasts. All the feasts aren't past. You know, Thanksgiving for us, we remember something in the past. Maybe historic, maybe the pilgrims, maybe just the past year. But the scripture talks about feasts that are yet future, that have not occurred yet, that you and I should be looking forward to. So for instance, in Luke 22, 29 and 30, Jesus said to his disciples, I grant that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Jesus says to his disciples, when I enter my kingdom, you get to eat and drink at my table. I don't know if this sounds impressive or not, but put this in the context of a king in the Middle East. If you were the best friend of the king, if you were the immediate family of the king, you sat and you ate at his table. This was high privilege and honor. You ate the best that the land had to, had to offer. You, you drank the best wine. When Jesus says to the disciples, you'll eat and drink at my table, he says, guys, you'll be at the most exalted place possible. You'll be in my presence feasting at my table. The king's table was the best place you could possibly eat. And Jesus says that to his disciples and his followers. You're going to be at my table, the table I set. There will be no lack. It will be the best place possible. He also says in Matthew 26, 29, this is also in the context of the Lord's Supper, the Passover, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, the wine that was used during the Passover meal, from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is heading into his suffering. He knows that. And he says, my days on earth of celebrating with this wine, they're over. And I'm not going to do this again, but I will do it again later. And I'll do it with you in my kingdom. We will feast again in my kingdom, in the future, Jesus says, it's a promise. You can count on it. 
shifting way way back to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is a big book that people get lost in. You know, if you know anything about the 66 chapters, it's probably chapters 40 through 66. They're poetic. They're memorable. Most people, if they know anything, it's it's in those chapters. The earlier chapters of Isaiah are about judgment, primarily. Judgment on the nations, judgment on Israel. And in the midst of that, we tend to lose these passages in which God promises blessing. And actually, one of the neatest promises in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. And it's about a future feast that is yet to be enjoyed on this earth. And God said through Isaiah, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. It'll be a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces, meats with marrow, and refined aged wine. This is a way of saying it's wine on the leaves. It's the aged wine. It's the best wine. It's the best meat. It's the best feast that can be set. God says, I'm laying out this lavish banquet, and on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, the veil which is stretched over all nations, he will swallow up death for all time. Commentators disagree on when this feast is going to happen, even how literal it is. I think it's literal and figurative. I think it means what it says, and I think it implies more. But this is either during Jesus' millennial reign or it's during the new heaven on the new earth when death has been removed as the curse and the element on the earth as we know it today. Death is removed. And when death has been removed in Jesus' presence, he says, I'm going to set this lavish banquet on the earth for all people. He says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. God says, I'm going to set the feast. And the response is, let us rejoice at the feast and be glad in his salvation. He's kept his promise. Death is removed. Salvation's come in. And God says, and I've, I've set this lavish banquet for the earth to come and enjoy. The curse is removed. You see something similar in Zechariah 14. This loses a little bit of its oomph if you don't know the context. Zechariah, looking at the end of uh, an era when the armies of the world are surrounding Jerusalem, and it's at this point in Zechariah 14 that the Scripture says the Lord himself will come. It says his foot will touch the Mount of Olives. This is the second coming of Jesus. And a great earthquake occurs, and there's a valley that divides Jerusalem. But Jesus returns in Zechariah 14. He destroys the armies that were surrounding Jerusalem, and he sets up his kingdom on earth. And in that context, in Zechariah 14:16, it says, It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Jesus has destroyed the armies of the earth, and the survivors of those armies that were opposed to his city are still invited to come back to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And the Feast of Tabernacles for the Jews, this was the high point of the year. This was a week-long celebration. It was the fall harvest. All the good stuff had come in. For in Jewish life, if you could do any feast, this was the one they wanted to do. And the nations, even those people that had opposed God's chosen in Jerusalem, come up year to year and celebrate the Feast of Tab Tabernacles with God's people in Jerusalem. Future feasts. When Jerusalem is the center of God's rule on the earth, the nations are coming up to feast in His presence. I don't know what your childhood memories of feasting looks like. I've said some of this before. You know, I'm one of 11 children, and uh, yes, a good Roman Catholic family. You know, so 13 people in this household I grew up in. And we always felt sorry for small families that lived in small houses. And if that's you, I'm sorry. I can't help you with that today. Just kidding. We loved being in a big family. And there was always things going on, as you can imagine, sometimes chaotic, but there was always a sense of life, and never more so than at the holidays. And if it was just our family, there were 13 people sitting around the dining room table feasting on what mom had prepared. And no meal began or ended without grace and prayer. A, a devout giving thanks to God for what he had provided. And as the kids grew up and as they had families of their own, that sense of feasting and celebration on the holidays, it just expanded. And then the 13 that had been around the dining room table, it became 20 and 30 with expanding families and friends and relatives and people who didn't have family here till it spread into the kitchen and into the living room and up the stairs in the entry hall. And we thought it was life as good as it got. The work was over. The, the work of the preparation of the feast was over too. And so you got to gather with your friends and with your family in this celebration of life. You recognized God in prayers of thanksgiving and you enjoyed what He provided with each other. And still, when I think back today, it's the vision and it's the memory of those kinds of celebrations that still inform a lot of what we do as a family. It was this call to feast, to give God thanks for what he provided, to share that with others around us, and to celebrate God and his goodness together. That was life as good as it got. Two things just going into the holiday season. Thanksgiving is behind us now. And, you know, Christmas is one of the craziest of seasons. You know, it is so busy. And there's so much going on. There's so much to take care of. But two things may be going in. The first is just that God, the God we serve, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's the Lord of the feast. And to see these times when we stop the labors of life, set aside the ordinary, but the necessary but the ordinary, and come into God's presence with others and thank him and rejoice and feast in his presence. This is a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing. It's a part of what he wants us to do. If you're a parent, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you're a parent and you've known your child wanted a particular gift and you were able to give them that gift and they get it, and they're just so tickled they can hardly contain it. And they're jumping up and down and they're saying thank you for what you gave them. As a parent, that's just about the greatest feeling you can have. That you're blessing your child in a way that delights them. And you're delighted as they turn around and thank you for what you've given. 
We've got some old, perhaps embarrassing videotape at one of our family gatherings when my girls were little, and one of my girls got a highly treasured doll. And it's almost pathetic. She is jumping up and down, and she just can't stop saying, Thank you, thank you. Did you see what I got? Did you see what I got? Well, God is our Father. He's the best Father you could ever have. And He delights to give us good gifts. And so these feasts, these times where we lay aside the mundane and He blesses us, it delights His heart that we're delighted with His gifts in His presence. And that's what He's calling us to. This isn't self-seeking or self-serving. This is about fellowship with a God who's gracious and who loves us and delights to pour out on us good gifts and to see us delighted and blessed by them. That's what we're being called to. God is the Lord of the feast. And we should excel at this, by the way. Again, I don't mean in excessive. I mean Christians should know how to celebrate and how to feast with joy and thanksgiving, with an attitude of peace, because we know where we're going. We know who we belong to. We know that there's future feasts to come. We can trust God for whatever's going on in our life. Who more than Christians should be able to throw a great feast, a joyous celebration of giving thanks and enjoying the good things God's given, if not us? We should excel at the feast. And also, just related to the Lord's Supper, again, while there's a sober element, a real sober element to the Lord's Supper, it's the reminder of what our atonement costs Jesus what the covering for our sin costs God, His Son's life. That's very sober. But that atonement has been made. The price has been paid. And now, when Scripture says we draw water joyfully from the well of life, joy is what Christ has provided for us. Even at the Lord's Supper, it's serious connotation and context, and yet there's joy there for us because the work is done. And if you remember in 1 Corinthians 11... It says we remember the Lord in His death until He comes. Even the Lord's Supper has this promise of a future. This is temporary. You're going to be with me. I'm going to return. The second thing is just that, that there is a future feast. There's a future banquet. Revelation 19.9 says it this way, to John the Apostle from an angel. An angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a future feast called the marriage supper. And it's when Jesus, the Lamb of God, formally unites with His bride, the church. It's the consummation of God's desire that His bride, the church, be united with Christ. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb, yet future. And John writes, Blessed are you to be invited to this supper. If you're a Christian, this is your future. You'll be there. But this is a by-invitation-only celebration, by the way. You've got to have an invitation. And the invitation is acceptance of Jesus' offer of a free pardon for sin. If you're here this morning and you don't know, if I died today, I don't know if I'd go to heaven or hell, accept Jesus' price, His payment, for your sins. That's all we do. We bring our sins. Jesus says, I've covered those. You're good to go. If you're not sure you know Christ, the invitation to this future feast is the knowledge that you're saved. So if you have not entrusted yourself to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I would strongly encourage you to simply do that today. Lord Jesus, 
Thanks for dying for my sins. Thanks for taking my place in your death on the cross. I gladly accept your offer of salvation, and I look forward to that future feast with you. If you're a Christian, and most of us here are, I know, guys, you know what this also means? We can pass out some invitations ourselves, don't you think? If we're not telling others about Christ and their need for Him, and the two options for every human being's future, we are not loving the Lord our God and we are not loving our neighbor. We should be offering invitations to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We should be sharing our hope of Christ with others. We should be sharing the gospel with those around us, those folks we work with, eat with, go to school with, There's a feast coming up, and it's by invitation only. Are we making that invitation known to others? It's a serious thing. Be a joyous event when we get there, but it's a serious thing for sure. Are we offering those invitations to others as well? As we move through the holiday season, I I pray that God gives us the ability to enjoy and to protect this sense of blessing, blessing by him in the past, promise a future blessing, the sense of thanksgiving that we enjoy with each other, in each other's company, and also along with that, this sense of being compelled to tell others there's an important feast coming up that you don't want to miss. It's in heaven. It's with the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's as important as anything else we do. So going into the the Christmas season now, God is the Lord of the feast. He calls us to the feast. It's a way of life in which we occasionally, we stop all the other things. We gather with our friends and family in the faith. In God's presence, Christ our Savior, we thank Him for His past deliverances. We thank Him for His current provision. And we joyously look forward to that future wedding supper of the Lamb. Father, thanks that You are gracious and benevolent beyond our asking. And that, Lord, while we tend to think in small measures, you pour out your grace in great drafts. Father, as we go through this season of feasting, of Christmas, of the remembrance of Jesus' incarnation, his joining us in our humanity on the earth, Lord God, would you remember, would you help us to remember to, on those occasions, lay aside the other things, like the Sabbath rest you gave Israel. We're laying aside the normal work so that we can gather together with you. And Lord, we can experience your rich blessing and we can thank you for your presence and for your provision. Lord God, would you inspire us also that you've got a big house that you want to fill up and you've got plenty at your table. Would you inspire us as we share the hope we have in Christ with those around us who do not yet know you. And Father, I thank you that just as surely as Jesus came in the incarnation, just as surely he will come again and we will see him face to face. We will be as he is and we will dine with him at that great supper you've prepared. In Jesus' name, amen.